Well, beloved, I don't think I'm exaggerating, exaggerating too much when I say that all of us desire to live a good or a lovely or beautiful life. Now, the challenge in suggesting that this is something that we desire is defining what a beautiful life actually looks like. For some of us, perhaps some of us have these images in our minds right now of what we think that might look like. Maybe it's of us sitting on a front porch swing watching the family playing with the dog on the front lawn. Maybe it's a picture of us having accomplished our goal of of having made it. Maybe we've finally finished after many years of school and are now able to get established and perhaps even respected in our field. Or maybe it's that we have finished our working years and have entered into retirement and there's all these all sorts of these plans ahead of us about how we're going to spend our time. How we often define the good life has to do with accomplishing or generally having certain things. But James gives us a bit of a different spin on what truly defines a good or beautiful life. He gives us a definition of the good life that remains good even if we don't become respected in our fields or even if we aren't given a family and a dog and a porch swing or if our retirement years are marked more by poor health than lovely trips. It gives us a picture of a beautiful life that lasts despite the changing circumstances of our lives. And that's because James focuses less on things and accomplishments and plans and more on how that life is lived. In fact, what he's going to show us this morning is that a truly beautiful life is actually a life that is lived by godly wisdom. Now, James has written about wisdom already in this letter a number of times, but here he returns to it. And what he does is he contrasts godly wisdom and demonic wisdom, or wisdom that comes from above with wisdom that comes from below. And James' point is that only godly wisdom truly leads to a beautiful life. He shows us that by contrasting these two different ways of thinking, these ways of living, these two sorts of wisdom. And he does this, beloved, so that we will see the beauty of the one And want to embrace it, but also to see the ugliness of the other and want to reject it. We're going to do this in three points this morning. First, we are going to see the promise of the good life. Second, we're going to look at false wisdom. And third, we are going to look at true wisdom. James begins his discussion about wisdom with a question. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? What James is doing is he is inviting us in. He wants us to enter into his conversation here. He wants us to think about how we are living. And this is what wisdom is, generally speaking. It's about how we go about living. It's it's about how we use the information that we've learned. It's concerned about living the best possible way in this world. It's recognizing that there are some ways of living that generally produce better results than other ways of living. And I think it's fairly safe to say that this is something that we do think is true about ourselves. We generally don't think of ourselves as the opposite of wise. We don't think of ourselves as foolish. 
We generally think that the way that we think, the way that we live, is good, that it is correct, that it is wise. I think it's fairly safe to suggest that we think that we are wise, because if we did not think that we were wise, or the way that we were living was wise, then we probably wouldn't be living that way. So I think it's natural for us to default into thinking that how we live, how we think, is truly wise. James wants to unsettle this a little bit. And so he asks the question, do you think yourself wise? Do you think you understand how best to live in this world? And James starts with this inviting question because he wants us to think about how we are living. Having invited us in, he then asks us to evaluate if we truly are wise in understanding He says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. In other words, he says, prove it by the life that you're living. Prove that you are living wisely by showing me your beautiful life. James is saying here is that we can tell if we are living wisely if the wisdom that we are living by produces good conduct or, more accurately, a beautiful life. The idea of a beautiful life comes from the phrase, by his good conduct. The Greek beneath these words is a little more complicated than we have here in our English translations. There are two words for good in the Greek language. And one of them means good as in good behavior or as in keeping the rules. But there's another word that James uses, And that's the word he uses here. And this other word means good as in beautiful, good as in lovely or attractive. And then we have the word conduct, which refers not to particular instances of what we do, but to the collection of all that we do. It refers to how we live. It's about the way that we live. And when you put these two ideas together, we get this beautiful picture of a beautiful Life, uh, an attractive and a lovely life. And what James is saying is that if we think we are wise and understanding, the loveliness of our lives should prove it. If we are truly wise, our lives should be beautiful and attractive. Beloved, this fits into a broader biblical theme, a broader biblical idea of the children of God, of the church of Jesus Christ, being a light to the nations, being a witness to the world around us. The church is to bear witness, to give a foretaste of what the kingdom of God is like. There is to be some sort of magnetic pull into the church of Jesus Christ. And the reason why is because the lives of God's children are, are to be lovely lives. They should show the world that there is a better way to live. And this better way doesn't mean that we have our lives all together. This is not at all what it means. James is not saying here that we will live perfect lives because that doesn't exist, this side of glory. It also doesn't mean that our lives will be easy, that everything will go our way, that we will never see hardship or difficulty. That too is a wrong idea of what sort of good life James is talking about here. Rather, what James is describing is about is how we live in the difficulty, how we respond to the hardship, to the conflict that does arise in each one of our lives He's concerned about how we respond to the brokenness and the sin in this world and in our own hearts. 
How we respond to these things is to paint a lovely picture, an attractive picture of a better way. And it's a better way because it is a life lived the way that it's meant to be lived. That is, it's a life lived in line with God's design rather than against it. Just think about how attractive, how even lovely it is when an athlete is performing his or her sport. Think about a runner whose arms and legs are working perfectly together, who has perfect form. It looks like they are running effortlessly. They are smooth. Their breathing is controlled. Their, their faith is, faith, face is relaxed. It's like they were designed to run forever. Put that in comparison to how I run. Because I don't look like that when I run. My arms and legs are flailing everywhere. My face is beet red. I am huffing. I am puffing. I am in pain. I'm anything but smooth. And that's only at kilometer number one. It's not a pretty sight. There's nothing beautiful or lovely or attractive about that at all. And that's what James is getting at here. An unwise life is not beautiful because it's not lived as it's meant to be lived. It looks like more like my attempts to run. That's because sin, beloved, is always ugly. There's nothing lovely about sin at all. There is nothing beautiful about sin. But a truly wisely lived life is beautiful because it's lived the way that life in this world is meant to be lived. That's what wisdom is. It's living God's way in God's world. And that is why true wisdom produces something beautiful, something attractive. And this is the way that God's people have been called to live. This is not all that James has to say here. James gives another defining feature of true wisdom in this opening verse that will help us to evaluate if we are living by true wisdom And it's that a truly wise person will show his works in the meekness of wisdom. In other words, he will do everything with a spirit of meekness or humility. His or her demeanor will be one of gentleness, one of meekness. And this is a necessary part of true wisdom because it's at at its very heart, it's about submission to God. It's recognizing that God knows how to live best in this world. Take marriage, for example. If God is the one who has designed and instituted marriage, then it is foolish not to follow the path that he has set out. It's foolish to ignore his instruction about how marriage should be conducted. And when God's instruction is not submitted to, it produces something that is not beautiful. But it is wise to humble ourselves and submit to his gentle and loving direction. And beloved, this goes for every part of our lives. Humility, meekness, gentleness will characterize one following true wisdom because true wisdom involves putting to death our desires, our thinking that we know how best to live in this world. It puts to death our ideas about what is good and what is lovely. And it submits to God's declaration instead It involves placing Christ on the throne of our hearts rather than fighting against him. And this results in a spirit of gentleness and humility in the life of those who are truly wise in the life of those who have been made truly wise in Jesus Christ. 
So James starts with a penetrating and important question. We might think that we are truly wise in our understanding. We might think that we know how to best move forward, how to, that we have the best grasp on how to understand this world, that we know how best to live. But James sets before us the standard by which to evaluate our wisdom. Does it produce a lovely life? And does it produce a humble and a gentle spirit? Well, having laid that foundation for us, James jumps into his comparison of the two kinds of wisdom. And he first addresses a kind of wisdom that is a false wisdom. He says in verses 14 through 16, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, that is unspiritual and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Now we need to recognize here that James is using three categories to uh, evaluate, help us evaluate. First, he talks about the origin or the source of this wisdom. Second, he describes their characteristics. And thirdly, their results. And so the origin then of false wisdom is stated first in the negative and then in the positive. James says it is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And what we have here is a rising crescendo of of severity and description about the source of this wisdom. It's first of all not from above, but earthly That is, it does not consider anything beyond what is seen and heard and understood in this world. It's limited to what we can know from this world. This is the reason so often that the wisdom of this world only goes as far as we can learn through our senses. This is the reason we live in a society that trumpets the superiority of science over faith. It's because we can see it, we can hear it, we can touch it, we can know it. But this only gets us so far. And this is why James says, secondly, that it is unspiritual. Because this goes hand in hand with it being earthly. It's unspiritual in the sense that it does not acknowledge the Spirit of God. Its eyes have not been opened by the Spirit to see this world, to to see beyond this world to the reality of God. No, this sort of, sort of wisdom, it comes from a heart that does not or has not been touched by the Spirit of God. It is a heart of one who has not been made new with a life-giving spirit. Therefore, it is a wisdom that lives life without consideration about God at all. This leads thirdly to it being demonic. This is the ultimate source, its ultimate origin. Here is the the bluntest and hardest-hitting fact of this sort of wisdom. It's wisdom that not only does not think about God, but is actually hostile to God. This demonic origin wants to keep our eyes from seeing the spiritual, to keep our eyes of faith from looking beyond the physical world so that we don't see God, that we actually work against God. And so the heart of James' point is that this false wisdom is a wisdom that doesn't come from God at all, but it comes from the powers of darkness that are hostile to God. That is its source. 
And then he moves on to describe the characteristics of this sort of wisdom. He, he says that they are bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Earthly wisdom is characterized by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Now, bitter jealousy or envy is, is a desire to possess that which does not belong to us. It's self-directed. It's about my wants and my desires for what someone else has. And it's bitter because we aren't okay with the fact that they have it and we don't. It's bitter because it's not okay with this situation. And this goes directly against the idea of meekness or humility. Such an attitude reveals that we are disgruntled ultimately with God. We are bitter at him. We are angry at him because he has not given us what we want or what we think we deserve. Results in a miserable person when others have what we want. And selfish ambition is very similar. It too is self-directed. Selfish ambition is willing to do anything, to hurt anyone, to disregard everything, all for the sake of accomplishing what we want. It's about me being popular even if I have to hurt others. It's about me being successful even if I have to destroy the careers of my fellow workers. It's about me being acknowledged as right, even if I have to run over everyone in my way. There's nothing wrong with ambition. We need to be clear about that. But it is the selfish part that points all of that energy away from God and towards me. There's a common denominator here, and it has to do with ourselves. It's all about me. It's all about my kingdom, my desires, about what I think I deserve. It's about me and not about God at all. And this sort of wisdom will, not only, will only bring about one sort of result. James says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Destruction and chaos. That's what results from this sort of wisdom. It ruins things. It destroys things. It harms and it separates. And not only does it destroy, but it also celebrates what is evil. It results in every vile practice. Beloved, we don't have to look very far into our world to, to see the fruit of this way of thinking. Everything that the Bible declares that is, the very things that the Bible declares is Vile and is evil and is wrong and is destructive is exactly what our world is running towards. Good is being called evil and evil is being called good. The family is being torn apart. Murder of the unborn or murder of the old or of the mentally challenged is being cast as an act of mercy. Sin is being celebrated. Disorder and vile practices are celebrated. We don't need to look to the world to see this. We only have to look into our own hearts. For where in our lives are we leaving patterns of destruction? Where are we demonstrating vile practices such as boasting or grasping or criticizing, quarreling, gossiping, or slandering? Where is envy, where is jealousy evident in our lives? Beloved, are there times and we rejoice in the downfall of our brothers and sisters in Christ? Are there times when we think, yeah, that serves them right? What about when we tear down rather than build up? 
Is this the beautiful life that wisdom is to produce? Are broken relationships what the good life is supposed to look like? Can selfish ambition give birth to humility? Can they exist together? The answer is no. This is not the wisdom that is right and true. This is why James says, do not boast and be false to the truth. Do not boast in this wisdom. Because it's not true wisdom at all. To pretend that this is true wisdom is to be false to the truth. It's false wisdom. It peddles lies, not the truth of our God. This wisdom does not result in a beautiful life. It is not characterized by a gentle and meek heart. And so James says, do not boast in your shame. It's not wisdom at all. It is not from God. It's not from above. Remember, beloved, that James is addressing the church of Jesus Christ here. He wants them to recognize where this false wisdom is evident in their hearts. And he's addressing those who thought they are wise but were acting so foolishly. And that's what we need to wrestle with as well. And his point is, his plea is to stay away from it. Don't pursue this wisdom. Don't boast in this wisdom. Don't identify with this wisdom. Rather, see its ugly fruits and know that this is not from God. See the unlovely life it produces and flee from it. But if this wisdom is from below, if it is false wisdom, if it does not produce a lovely, humble life, then what is true wisdom? What does it look like? What is its source? What are its characteristics? What does it result in? Well, James begins by pointing us to true wisdom's source, and he says that it is from above. If earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom is wisdom that is not from God, then wisdom from above is wisdom that comes from God. This means that the one who creates this world actually reveals how to live in this world. This means that to live with the wisdom that he gives, wisdom from above, is to live our lives with a God-given orientation. Beloved, this is the wisdom that is given to us in Jesus Christ because Christ is the one who is the Lord of glory, who came down from glory above. And true wisdom is found in him. And we find that wisdom, beloved, in his word. If earthly wisdom is unspiritual, then wisdom from above is most certainly spiritual. True wisdom is real to us by the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit who works in our hearts so that we may read God's word and see the wisdom that is there to see that the way the Bible calls us to live is the only way to live, that it is the way that we are meant to live. So true wisdom is wisdom that is from above. It is wisdom that is from God. And then James moves on to describe what this, the characteristics of this true wisdom. He describes for us, beloved, the difference that true wisdom makes in our lives. He gives us seven characteristics here. The first is purity. It's moral purity. A truly wise person understands that wisdom comes from God in Christ and that God is a holy God. And that therefore to live as this holy God has designed is to live, designed us to live, is to live a morally pure life. 
Here we see very clearly the difference between true and false wisdom because false wisdom does not care about morality at all because it does not care about God. No, it cares only for the fulfillment of my own desires, my own wants, whatever they are. It laughs at moral purity. It rejects it because it puts a a restraint on what my sinful heart truly wants. Earthly wisdom pursues and chases after sin because that's what our hearts most naturally desire. But true wisdom pursues purity because true wisdom is concerned about the holiness of God. It's concerned about what God wants. Add to this purity, uh, added to this purity is peaceable. Unlike the abrasive self-centeredness of jealousy, true wisdom is characterized by peace-loving and peacemaking. False wisdom does not care for the destruction that it produces. It's all about getting what I want, no matter the destruction that it causes. True wisdom seeks the opposite. It seeks peace because our God is a God of peace. And this goes hand in hand with gentleness. This is because to seek peace, you must have a heart of tenderness and thoughtfulness for, not, for, for, for others. And this, again, reflects the very character of God himself, who does not break a bruised reed or extinguish a smoldering wick. True wisdom is also open to reason. And this reflects a heart that is dedicated to the truth of God's word. This means that we are ready to listen, ready to reflect, ready to be challenged. Here we see the humility, the the meekness of true wisdom. Because one who follows true wisdom recognizes that not one of us has the infallible interpretation of what is right and what is wrong. It recognizes that we are not independent beings, that we are the church of Jesus Christ, that we are placed into a community that is called to build each other up. It means a willingness to be corrected, to be challenged, to be pointed back to God's word. Next, James points to being full of mercy and good fruit. To be full of mercy is to recognize that we are all needy, that we are all in need of help, that we can't live life on our own. So it starts with a merciful heart to see and to recognize uh, those in need and then to also meet that need. And that's what being full of good fruits gets at. The truly wise not only see it, but they get to work to relieve the needs of those around them. Again, we see the contrast with false wisdom here. Mercy sees the other and works to relieve their needs to offer help, while jealousy and envy result in vile practices that have no concern for others. Sixth, we have impartial. This is the same word that James used at the beginning of his letter to describe the double-minded man in contrast to the single-minded man. He uses it to talk about the loyalty of our hearts. Wisdom from above is characterized by an impartial loyalty, a wholehearted loyalty, an undivided loyalty to Christ. And this single-minded loyalty leads to the last characteristic, which is sincerity. Because one who is sincere is not trying to balance two loyalties. No, they are honest with themselves, they are honest with God, and they are honest with those around them. Because the sincere don't have to maintain two different lifestyles, one on the inside and, and one on the outside. They aren't putting on a show for anybody. 
No, they're honest, honest with their struggles, honest with the fact that we don't have all our, our lives all together, sincere with the fact that life is actually hard. This is because we know that we aren't God, we aren't perfect, that we are in constant need of grace and mercy that are found in Christ. A sincere heart rests firmly in Christ because it is an honest heart. Now, beloved, these seven characteristics are thrown at us in in quick succession by James. It, It feels like wave after wave. But when we step back, we see that what James is doing, he's painting a picture for us of the character of the child of God who is following the wisdom from above. And he's showing us that it is radically different than the character of the wisdom of this world. It is, in the words of James, a beautiful difference. One is focused on me, on myself, on what I want, on my kingdom, on my domain, on my glory, on my praise. The other is focused on Christ and through Christ on others. One is selfish and one is selfless. One is ugly and one is beautiful. And this is seen most clearly in its results, James says in, in verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is shown in peace by those who make peace. A, a harvest of righteousness, an, an overflowing abundance of righteousness, of that which is characterizes and pleases God. This is the life that Christ loves and desires of his people. This is the life that is produced when we are united to him in faith, for he is the wisdom of God. He has redeemed us to live with godly wisdom. He is the one who has given us his spirit to show us the way, to give us the strength and the ability to live a truly wise life. Notice, beloved, here that the harvest of righteousness thrives in the context of peace. Just like a seed planted in the ground needs to have the right conditions to grow, so too does the harvest of righteousness And James says that that context is one of peace. And this peace is ultimately the peace that we find in God. That is first and that is foremost. And that peace is one for us in Jesus Christ. We can't have a harvest of righteousness in our lives without first peace with our Almighty Father. But this peace also is the peace that is to characterize the household of Christ, the church. When there is peace among us, beloved, that is the soil in which we grow in godly character. It is a soil out of which we live a life that is pleasing to God. This is the key to a beautiful life. This is what godly wisdom, wisdom that is from above, produces and is characterized by. And so when we step back, beloved, we can see that James is pointing us very clearly in one direction and very clearly away from another one. Pursue godly wisdom. Pursue Christ. That other sort of wisdom only leads to destruction, to to conflict, and to sorrow. It does not and cannot lead to a beautiful life that is pleasing to God. He's also challenging us to reflect on the sort of wisdom that we think that we are following. Do our lives reflect the beautiful life that he is describing? Is it evident in our character? Do we sow unity and peace 
or do we sow discord and destruction? Finally, beloved, what James does is redefine for us what a beautiful life truly is. It's not about what we have. It's not about the things that we accomplish. It's not about things or successes. A truly godly life is about character. It's about godly character. It's about living life in line with God. It's living life out of the abundance of his grace to us in Jesus Christ. It's about the gospel working itself out in the every day of our lives in whatever circumstances we might find ourselves in. Beloved, let us therefore avoid everything that comes from earthly wisdom. Let us identify it where it is still living in our hearts, where it's still living in our lives, and let us flee from that, put it to death. But let us then pursue in the strength and the ability that Christ has given to us in the gospel, let us then pursue the truly beautiful life. Amen.